Please turn to Matthew chapter 6. We begin reading in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? But look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, and they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek, seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its evil. Tolkien's tale, The Fall of Gondolin, takes you back to an age when the triumph of the Dark Lord Morgoth is almost complete. His rule of terror from the cavernous halls of Angband is uncontested in Middle-earth. Even elves who have eluded captivity and slavery, they live in constant fear of his spies, which are everywhere in the form of animals, birds. Tolkien describes their state as living under a permanent shadow of dread of his presence. But enlightened citizens of the 21st century would snicker at the idea of living in constant fear of a dark lord. But there is a dark lord who would have you live in unmitigated, constant fear. If you do not believe this, if you don't buy this, here's one for you. Hebrews 2.15 states that every human being lives in fear, lives in slavery, 
215 states, subject to lifelong slavery to the devil, to the dark Lord, for fear of death. Now Jesus came to deliver us from this granddaddy of all fears that Satan continues to use in a thousand and one ways for his own schemes. But in this part of the world, he isn't waving a pitchfork to scare the living daylight out of us. No. The terror that he engineers is more diabolical. It is more subtle. It goes unnoticed. It flies under the radar. It is hidden. Hidden behind anxiety and worrying. Anxiety and worrying that can wear more faces than any one of us thinks possible. Politicians have always used fear to mobilize people, and not just since the rise of populism in the Western world, a current phenomenon in this part. The healthcare industry, insurance giants, the media, they all suddenly stoke fears or generate new worries through conjuring negative images and so binding the will of the public and keeping them under their sway for their own ends. And with fear dressed up as anxiety, we've landed straight in our text right here in 6.24 through 34, which is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, no one ever used the word, do not fear, more often than Jesus did. The gospel message is summarized, even though insufficiently, but it is summarized in these words that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear. Luke 1.74. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of these five great teaching discourses in Matthew's account. And it commences with the unforgettable words of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. With these words, Jesus pushes the gates of the kingdom of God wide open. These are some of the most gracious words that you will ever hear. Bringing us face to face with our loving Heavenly Father. It's a taste of the glory of things to come. However, while Jesus opens the gates widely, in order to teach us of the kingdom of God and of the reign of God in this life, in this world, Jesus must also 
close all other doors. Jesus, therefore, in the Sermon on the Mount, closes one door after another. He closes the door to anger, saying, be reconciled to your brother and do it quickly while you are in the way, while there is time and while the situation is redeemable. He shuts the door to a secret life of sexual pleasure, saying, if you only look lustfully at a woman, you've already broken the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He shuts the door to manipulative speech, saying, you let your words simply be yes or no, for whatever is more than these is of the evil one shuts the door to vengeance and to hatred of those who hurt you, saying, love your enemies. If you do not love your enemies, if you do not learn to love your enemies, what more do you do than the Gentiles who love those who love them? He shuts the door to hypocrisy and pretense through works that are done to be seen for show, and through long prayers that sound so spiritual. And eventually, yes, finally you come to this text, and it too shuts a door. And can you guess which one? Yes, worrying is living in fear. Fear disguised as anxiety or worrying that seems harmless at first sight. It seems like a tiny little victim. Anxiety and worrying. Worrying is living in fear, but there's a flip side to it. Something more diabolical. Something more sinister. Something more subtle. And something that is so often overlooked. It passes unnoticed. It flies under the radar, as we said. What is it? It is this, brothers and sisters. When we worry, when we are anxious, we are, or we want to be, in control. That's the truth about us. When we worry, and it looks so harmless, when we worry, we are or we want to be in control rather than to let God's kingdom come, or as Jesus says in the closing words of our text, to seek God's kingdom first. People who worry are people who are in charge. And sooner or later they discover, of course, we all know this, they're not. So Jesus closes a door. Which door? In this text, Jesus closes the door of human autonomy, of acting like God, of being in control. It's what you see on the other side of your anxiety. Do you see it? It's there. For Jesus calls you to a life of childlike trust, dependence on your Heavenly Father. 
And that means that you leave the worrying to him. That means that he carries you, and he has, and he will. This little Emma that we baptized this morning, she has yet to learn this art of worrying. In one way, she already knows how to worry, but she also has to learn it. She cannot worry the way that I do or that you do. He has, she has to learn it, and she will. She will learn it. For now, she is blessed. Do you know why? Because all she knows is the touch of her mother or the voice of her father. That's all she knows, and that's enough for her. Jesus, as you can see in this passage, speaks of God as your heavenly Father twice. In verse 26 and then at the end of this passage in verse 32, setting a clear signal that you, your job, your job is to be a child. Be a child. To lean into your Father for everything. For either you look to your father for security or you look to yourself. When all is said and done, you only have these two options. And if you do look to yourself, as the Beatles used to sing, boy, you're going to carry that weight for a long time. And you are not meant to carry that weight. You cannot carry that weight. You were not meant to be in control, in charge. And you will be restless, therefore, and anxious. And you will be worrying. It's just the way Satan wants you to be. That's where he wants you to be, because this renders you fruitless and leaves you under his sway. Anxiety is like target fixation. It's an attentional phenomenon that you can observe among human beings. The way it works is that you become focused, so focused on an object in front of you that you inadvertently increase the risk of colliding with it and then being broken in the process. So, if you drive your car and you keep staring at the license plate in front of you, wondering whether it contains a numerical mystery. <laughs> I, I play these games. I am crazy when it comes to this. I perceive that some of you know what I'm talking about. And you keep staring at the license plate in front of you, you are more likely to cause a fatal collision. And so it is when you're fixed fixed on the target of money, fixed on the target of career, fixed on the target of comfort, of pleasure, or anything else. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to be anxious, but he knows how slow we are to hear. And so he teaches us Three lessons of living in fear and worry. And with each, he raises the stakes by one degree. Anxiety is useless, number one. Then he raises the stakes and says, 
it is also faithless, number two. And then he raises the stakes once more and says, anxiety is evil, number three. Anxiety is useless. Which of you, by adding or by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Do you hear this? What is he talking about? Couched in these words lies the fear of death because if anyone endeavors to add only an hour to life, what are you doing? What am I doing? We are trying to keep death at bay. It's the fear of death couched in these words. And this hits close to home, doesn't it? Close to home in our culture of youth worship, in which everyone tries to extend life at any cost. We want to live forever young. We want to be forever young. And people have themselves frozen to death in the hope of being revived in an age when the curse has been overcome, when death has been overcome, and we reach singularity, when you have nanocomputers floating through your bloodstream, eradicating any sources of disease or deterioration. It's the fear of death. And it affects us more than we know. Because this, this isn't paradise. This life, this experience of yours, it isn't paradise. And we all know it. And you can't make it into paradise. But we all try. We all try to recreate an Eden. We cannot help but do this because the longing has been put in our cradle. It has been hardwired into us. There is a looming memory of a lost paradise. There is a desire for a lost paradise. And the cry of a baby like Emma who doesn't understand why she is in pain, is a cry for Eden. And the cry for a little girl who has been mocked by her peers is a cry for paradise. The cry of a teenager who lost or had her iPad stolen is a cry for Eden. And the exasperation of a man who can never please his boss Nothing he ever does is good enough. It's a cry for paradise and the grumpiness of an old man who feels, who knows that his body does not do what it used to do anymore. is a cry for Eden. We all groan. All creation is groaning together because we are all dissatisfied. This isn't paradise. We are all dissatisfied in some way. And then, and then, there is death. And it renders every human ambition futile, useless, in fact. 
Death is unrepeatable. You only get to do it once. Usually you get a second chance at anything else that you do. You can try again. You can fall and rise and try again. Death you only do once. It's the great unknown and it's the great inevitable at the same time. Nobody can tell you what it will be. And if someone could tell you what death was for her or for him coming back from the experience, nobody can guarantee you that your experience will be the same. You don't know. And as you know from John Bunyan, death, crossing the river of death, to use his metaphor, is one of the last two great challenges of the pilgrim. Bunyan portrays the scene as reaching this river of death. And there are two angelic beings. The presence of God is with him, but suddenly they disappear. I do not wish to overinterpret this, but I do believe that it means that we cross that river one by one alone. And you can picture yourself many years from now on your deathbed with your loved ones sitting by you, holding your hand, singing Christian hymns, reading scripture to you, praying with you. But when all is said and done, you have to cross that river alone because they, close as they are, they cannot go with you. You have to go alone. So, how many of you would like to die today? Well, you can say, Martin, I haven't given it any thought this morning. Well, then give it some thought. How many of you would like to die today? And I know the answer. I know what I would say. No, not really. If I can help it, I don't really want to die today. And it's understandable. It's quite understandable. You know why? Death is an enemy to be faced. And death is an enemy to be reckoned with. And unlike so many worries and fears in this world, this one isn't engineered. This one has not been conjured or fabricated. This one is real. It's real. God himself calls death enemy, last enemy standing. It's real. And I can say that if your trust is invested in anything but Jesus Christ and his gospel, then fear will come for you. Fear comes for you every day. Fear is coming for you when death knocks on your door. And you are a fool. And you are a liar. If you say, well, I ain't got no fear of death. But... Let's not forget that as God says, I am able to make all things work together for good for you. I can do it and I do do it. I promised it and I will do it. 
He can make all things work together for good. And so even the fear of death, the granddaddy of all fears that begets all other fears, is an ally. By God's grace, the fear of death becomes an ally, teaching us to rise above ourselves and to become more like Jesus, who always refused to be defined or ruled by fear. Because fear, on one level, is very predictable. Fear always asks the same question. What is that question? Who do you trust? Where do you go when afraid? Where do you go? Do you have a place to go when you are afraid? The biblical story that culminates in Jesus Christ overcoming death, conquering death for you, always presents God as faithful and steadfast and trustworthy. And he assures you that you will be safe with him even when you pass through the river of death. For although you will not see him, he will be present with you. Only he knows the way. Only he can give you safe passage. There is no ferryman to hire and to pay off to get you across the river into God's presence. You don't cheat death that way. But Jesus Christ has already given his word. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now tell me now, if I tell you this, is, is there any possibility that it isn't so after all? Would I tell you if it were not so? And the disciples who heard these words the first time, they all shook their heads and said, no, no, we all know that we make empty promises, but you do not. And what you say, it must come to pass. And what you promise, it must be fulfilled. And Jesus Christ himself has passed from death to life to make sure that you will make it across too. Here's the granddaddy of all fears that begets all other fears. It's canceled out because the greatest fear has been overcome. What then? What does worrying accomplish? It doesn't even add an hour, a single hour to the life that God gives you here before he gives you the kingdom. It's useless, truly useless, good for nothing. Well, that's one. Lesson number two raises the stake by one degree. Jesus teaches that anxiety is also faithless. It is void of faith. Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And now listen to this. Oh, you of little faith, do you hear? He's raising the stake to the level of faith. He is arguing that worrying is faithless, void of faith. And we have two arguments here from the lesser to the greater. Jesus speaks of birds and flowers, and he, he says that they are inferior to you. They are inferior to you. You are not an animal. You're not just the living organism. You are far more than that. They are inferior to you. And they are so in three ways. Jesus teaches that they don't work. And if they can work, they don't plan the way that you can. Surely you can plan. And surely your Father in heaven will work through your plans to care for you. It's what he has designed. Second, Neither birds nor flowers can say, Father, but surely you can. And you bet your heavenly Father hears you when you cry to Him. And number three, neither birds nor flowers can trust, but surely you can. You can draw near to God, and you ought to know that He draws near to you when you do, for He rewards those who diligently seek him. And in Luke's version of this teaching, Jesus closes with this word. He says, fear not. There you have it again. Fear not, little flock. This is lovely, isn't it? Jesus knows how we feel. We feel like a little flock, little, insignificant, weak, exposed, vulnerable. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is paradise, since we mentioned it earlier. The kingdom is paradise 2.0. Everything God promises you, his love, his joy, his peace, his presence, and being with him in an unbroken stream of fellowship with not even the possibility of evil entering at any time. Don't be anxious. He's giving you the kingdom, says Jesus, and not only this, he does it gladly. As Jesus says, it is his good pleasure, meaning that it is a joy to your Father to bless you this way, because he is your father. It's a joy to him. What father who is here does not delight in giving good gifts to his children, knowing that these gifts enhance life? Your heavenly father is pleased. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Guard this truth like a treasure. Attend to it and don't let circumstances derail your faith. You've seen the heart of God. You've seen the face of God. Anxiety is faithless. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Silver Chair, Aslan, the Christ-like lion, offers a final word about the signs which are God's truth, God's promises. And this is a mountaintop experience. 
They are few and far in between. Every now and then you, you have an experience where God comes close and touches your heart. This is portraying such a scene where for a moment everything is clear and everything is simple. And there is no worry. And Aslan says to you, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And second, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. But as you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take care that it does not confuse your mind and the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them down there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe them. Nothing else matters. It is as we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. For he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. Stay on the rock. Fix your gaze on his signs, on his promises. Nothing else matters. Now this is target fixation, God's way. So here are the two lessons so far. Worrying is useless. And worrying is faithless. And now Jesus raises the stakes once more. Worrying is evil. It is of the evil one. Because it is the consequence of the first two lessons. Worrying raises the question of ultimate allegiance. If you worry, this is how we began today, if you worry, you are in charge. You put yourself in charge, in control, and you set to build your own kingdom, and you are set to make it pain-free. That's always the target. This is self-will. This is the way of the world. This is the way of the Gentiles, as Jesus says in verse 32. And it is ironic, isn't it? Because if you act like you are in control, then self-will leads you directly into slavery, slavery of Satan's design. You will not be free. For you either serve God or money, God or pleasure, God or fame. You can't serve two masters. Talking about money, even frugality can be an idol. Frugality can be the love of money. 
because the obsession of saving money or not spending money is not so much different from accumulating large amounts of it. In either case, money is your idol. And ultimately, worrying about money exposes the idol of self-will. The illusion or the urge of getting things done. The great struggle of my life is not discerning God's will. I'm not proud when I say to you that I know God's will. So that if I only do what I already know, I can live before God. I can walk before God. So can you. You know everything you need to know already. No, my problem isn't discerning God's will. My problem is discerning my own will and disowning it, losing it. For when I worry, my will gets in the way of God's kingdom. Remember God's signs. Self-will seeks to carve a kingdom in your own image. And this is wickedness. This is a kingdom opposed to God's kingdom. And at the center of God's kingdom is a father who carves you in his son's image. And so worrying is living in your own story, not God's story. It is living like a Gentile, like an unbeliever, like a man or a woman who is under the sway of the evil one, putting all your wisdom and your know-how to work to get what you want. It's target fixation, leaving you without God in the world and without signs from the Father. It's of the evil one, and it puts you on a collision course that will break you. And so, learn another lesson from Tolkien. Saruman once was a great wizard, but he stared too long into the Dark Lord's crystal ball. And he meant to fight evil, he had good intentions, but the more he looked, the more he stared, the more he empowered evil, and he himself turned evil. Hoping to control, hoping to be in control, he was being controlled, and he became a servant of the evil one. This is why Jesus teaches, worrying, anxiety, those are no bagatelles. They are no trifles. Jesus shuts the kingdom. This is what he does. This is yet another door. He shuts. Jesus shuts the door to all who act as though they are in charge, either by desire or by default. So what shall we do? Where shall we go? The key to seeing your Father in all things is always the same. It's to become a child again. It's to become a child again. Talk to your father about everything that moves you. Talk to your father about 
all the things that you want. Talk to him about your worrying about money, that therefore you want to win the lottery. Can't stop thinking about it. Can't stop thinking about that girl. Can't stop thinking about that job promotion. Talk to your father. Tell him about your brokenness. Hold hands with your father. And when you do, you allow the father to redirect your thoughts and your desires so that you can again pray, your will be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And, and this is what you'll see Jesus do when in the hour of his trial, so far from paradise, he held hands with the Father. And he knew that his will collided with the will of the Father, and he said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I do not want to drink it. I do not want to be there. But as he spoke to the Father of his will, as he exposed himself to the light of the Father's presence, he allowed the Father to direct his thought to the glory that he had come to accomplish. And he directed his thought to pray again. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. For when you seek the kingdom, the kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this teaching of our Savior Jesus that we so much need, especially in light of an uncertain future. Questions that we have, and there are no answers. We all have been down this corridor. We opened doors, one door after another, seeking comfort, seeking paradise. Yes, paradise is coming, but it is coming in the person of Jesus Christ who says these things. Anyone who follows after me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Grant us this light, Father, today and every day, and lead us into the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.